Greetings, citizen. Welcome to the show, and thank you for listening. For more of the art of wargaming in your life, definitely check us out on Instagram and Facebook. If you'd like to support the show, we have a Patreon account where you can do just that for as little as $1 a month. What we can offer will expand as the show does. If you don't have extra funds, but would still like to help us out, you can give us a like, share, or five-star review wherever you listen to podcasts. Want to get in touch? Feel free to message us or hit up our email, artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com. We look forward to continuing the conversation with you because we know the world is vast, with many different ideas on tactics and strategy that can be applied to the games we enjoy. Welcome to the Art of Wargaming on the Ear Verm Network. I am Yaga Malark. On this episode, we will be discussing art, science, and methodology, as described by Klauswitz in On War. And, I, and as, as an aside, I very much enjoyed prepping for this episode. There's a lot of meat to these couple of sections that we'll be studying, and so making sure that everything was thought of properly, and again, I, I think I got it. Those of you who are reading along at home, let's compare notes maybe, and, and perhaps you picked up something I didn't, but my goodness, this man certainly, certainly can uh, word. <laughs> he certainly can word. In this section, for instance, there was one sentence, one sentence that went on for, it started halfway down one page and ended halfway down the next page. That was one page worth of sentence. Now, granted, it made sense. It was one of those procedural sentences, one of those like, well, this, then preceded this, then preceded this, then preceded this. And so it made sense, but it still felt very unnecessary. And uh, definitely like any sort of English teacher would have just slammed it, just slammed it. A big red X on that particular passage. But Klauswitz's writing aside, this was a fun episode to prep for, and I'm looking forward to sharing it with you. Before we get into that, though, we have a few things that I wanted to discuss. Uh, the first one is that I have been playing quite a few games at this point with the Gene Steeler Cult Codex, and I have to say that I love it. I love it. I'm in a couple of groups online, and most of the people on there seem to think that it's a bad codex, that it, um, it doesn't work or that it's worse than last edition, or whatever the case may be, and they're talking about having a low win rate. And I'm confused. I'm legitimately confused. Because I'm using the same codex as they are, but I've, I have a decent win rate. I'm not saying that I'm God's gift to wargaming or anything like that, but Gene Steeler Cult is pretty tight. They got a lot of options, a lot of different tricks that no other army has access to. And they do a lot of cool stuff. If you're using them correctly with the right synergies, then yeah, they they can devastate the board. I've been, and it's not against, I'm not going against low tier opponents. I'm going against some of the best, you know, players in my local scene. And they're not playing slouch armies. We're talking like Grey Knights, Blood Angels. And again, by players who are not new and or, or super inexperienced. Again, Toto, he's technically new, but he doesn't count. He, he, he buckles down and he gets good at stuff real fast. So he doesn't count. Um, everybody else is a pretty seasoned vet, so I feel good about it. I feel good about this codex having some really fun games. Even the ones I've lost, 
really fun games. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. <laughs> I don't know what Codex and a bunch of other people are playing with. And, and it's been super successful. I've been watching some of the news from the tournaments, and Gene Steeler Colts have been doing pretty well in the hands of the right player. You know, it's definitely a, a high tier in terms of like skill level army. One needs to know what they are doing and have a, a pretty firm grasp of how those sorts of tactics work. Again, they don't fight conventionally. We're looking back to Abu Bakr Naji for advice on, on how to wield those guys. Yeah, so uh, not to keep beating a dead horse, but I really like the Gene Steeler book and I will look forward to continue using it. I'll be filling you guys in. Hopefully be posting some more videos to YouTube. I have a really, really hard time with electronic media. I do not know why. I like my books. I mean, I guess that's it. I grew up in the woods. I like my books and I don't, I don't post on Instagram. I don't post on, on any of the other things. If you go to my, like my page on Facebook is literally just me reposting things that I thought were interesting. It's not creative content. You know, I'm not going out there and trying to figure out how to make videos. I am no TikTok star or anything along those lines. And, uh, so yeah, if, if I, I know some of you are a part of the Facebook group <laughs> and a part of the Instagram, and there's normally paltry little on there. And part of that is because you know, it just isn't on my mind all the time. And the other part of that is, is I want to bring you good content. You know, I don't want to just be reposting other people's content on there. I don't want to just be um, producing content to produce content. I know that's a part of the algorithm or whatever these days is just to like pump stuff out to get it into the the airwaves or the, the interwebs, but I just, I'm not about that. I'm not about that. I like quality and whatever little quality I can scrounge out of the electronic medium I want to bring to you, my beloved listeners. So that's my excuse. Do you believe me? Oh <laughs> uh, yeah. Oh yeah. This knowledge coming back around, this knowledge that we're studying. I know that we talk a lot about Bell about like physical wargaming on this show. And it's because a lot of this stuff pertains specifically to being in the field, to fighting, to maintaining gear, to living in camp. A lot of what we're dealing with in these books deals specifically with those trends. Where it applies to 40K in the general overarching strategy terms, yeah, this is, you know, this material is great. But a lot of times I have trouble relating it to 40K just because, again, I, you know, I talk about a lot about power politics on here. You know, Belial and Azriel have pretty good balance. I ain't got to talk about the power politics of the Dark Angels. But you, you understand my point. Like, there's not, it's not the same. I'm sure, again, if I was a tournament coordinator or a playtester for Games Workshop or something like that, I would have something completely different to say on power politics. But in my very isolated way, I just don't know enough. Whereas with Belagarth, physical wargaming, I know quite a bit more. I've been around for a while. I've witnessed quite a lot of that. And so a lot of those lessons apply there. So those of you who are 40k players, I suppose is what I'm saying. Thank you for sticking around for the little, uh, you know, the little gems of knowledge that we're able to pull out of here. And uh, I hope, I hope the other stuff is useful to you as well. Um, yeah. Yeah. However, a little bit of serious stuff before we get into this, uh, this episode today, as you're no doubt aware, either if you're listening in the future, or if you're listening this weekend, when this episode drops, Russia recently invaded the Ukraine. Now, much like when uh, the U.S. was pulling out of Afghanistan, I do want to take a second to do a brief analysis of kind of what's going on strategically, tactically, 
overall with the power politics and and kind of show how a lot of the method or the, the things that we study are kind of playing out here and again i'm i'm going to try not to take any side you know it's it's not my business here on this show to pass judgment or to have my emotions or my opinions cloud academic pursuit so if you will suspend your emotions with me because i'm sure that other people have emotions <laughs> quite a few about this let's take a look at it the ukraine has long been a buffer zone between the russia uh, between russia and the rest of europe um because it's always like as far back as i can remember in my reading russia and the slavic states have kind of been treated as non-european you know there were a lot of ways they were considered asian I come from this stock as well. I'm Eastern European. So in a lot of ways, for most of our history, we were considered Asian. Only recently have we been included in the term Europe. And of course, all of that was once part of the, the Soviet Empire. Back when uh, Russia was Soviet, the Soviet Union, a lot, a lot of that was. All the stands over there and Eastern Europe was all a part of the Soviet bloc. That fell apart after the debacle in Afghanistan and other issues during Gorbachev's uh, presidency premiership, comradeship, whatever. So we're looking at this and NATO, Putin has always seen NATO as an anti-Russian organization, that that's the reason that they exist is to oppose Russia and its interests. And so it's, it's been a very um, hostile, like low key hostile relationship. And, and Ukraine has served as a buffer between the NATO states and Russia. Now, the Ukraine is also very close, border-wise, to the Russian capital. So he has he had concerns. He has concerns about security, I suppose, especially as the Ukraine was being courted. The Western powers around this time are, are courting the Ukraine, and we're kind of looking to perhaps include it in the membership of NATO. That is a huge threat to Russian national security. At least from from that their perspective, we have may have no intention of invading. At least as far as I know, from my low level non governmental position, we have no intention of invading. I don't know why we would. But yeah, so this this is justified that way, and and it was it was done very smart. It was done very smart. Uh, the because just rolling into the Ukraine and taking land that would have been an extreme and intolerable international outrage. But the way this is being justified is that they have been feeding. You know, soldiers and weapons to the to the eastern side of the Ukraine there and creating unrest and then using that unrest as a as a pretext for launching a an invasion and of course running the propaganda that everybody in the Ukraine is a Nazi which uh, as of the time of this taping with the amount of research that I've been doing and been reading the Ukraine is not is not Nazis the president is Jewish so I'm not sure I'm not sure how Putin got that one to pass, but he did. I, and, you know, that's the other big thing is Putin's propaganda machine is is top-notch. Just top-notch. I mean, it, it interferes not just in Russian politics, but also in world politics. The Russian propaganda machine interfered with the United States election. So he, he's smart. He's smart with what he's doing. He may be aggressive. He may be stepping on toes for sure, but he's doing it in such a way that, and, and of course, they've got the nukes. You know, Russia also has nukes. And as he has firmly stated that he is, he would use them if people oppose what he is doing. So we will see, we will see what his actions and what the West's reactions will, 
play out for in the coming days. Yeah, and if things are relevant, we'll talk about it on here. But moving on from that dreadful, dreary topic onto our main story today, which is developing method. In this episode, we're going to be looking at quite a few different definitions and categories because these two items, these two tools are necessary for developing a strong and consistent method. And before we really start to talk about that, we need to kind of touch base on where we finished up last time and when we were speaking about arts and sciences, because this also ties in to developing a method is to truly understand how the interplay between these various ideas really shakes out. So how do we know the difference between an art and a science? We discussed that a little bit last time about how we are always looking to take it from a potential to a kinetic how we're uh, trying to take science and create power from it. And this is kind of what we're talking about, is this, this difference between art and science. He defines it as the difference between knowing and doing. Obviously, the real definition of art is way broader than that, and the definition of science is way broader than that. But in terms of our material, in terms of what we're focusing on, that's the analogy he's making. You know, art is doing something and science is knowing something. Uh, as an aside, I kind of found this humorous. He was, by the way, he was a caddy in this section. Oh man. Yeah. I'll, I'll let you in on some of it. He was, he was snarky. <laughs> he was in a mood. And right here. He's talking about that. Nobody should ever name a book, the art of war or the art of archery or the art of cooking or whatever the case may be, because doing isn't in a book. All you can gain from a book, all any of us can gain from a book is knowledge. A book does not do for us. It does not demonstrate for us. That's an interesting point. Interesting point because I'm, I'm sure there's people, I've got artistic friends that would say that, you know, there's only so much that can be taught in a book that most of it has to be learned by going out and trying and failing and then trying again. So yeah, he, he, he's definitely, um, <laughs> yeah, he doesn't like that definition in terms of war. Um, but you know, it's not just an, a super easy conversion where there's one science to one art. Any one art takes a lot of different sciences. So l let's take painting, for instance, uh, an actual art. There's a lot of science that goes into it before the, the painter's brush even hits the canvas. You have the production of the canvas, the collection of the materials, the treatment of the materials, the shipment, the processing, the storage, all that is, is down to a, a science in a lot of ways, the knowledge of how to, to make that, uh, that cloth that is painted upon. Same thing for every one of the palettes. Every single one of those paints was created using science, using the right, uh, chemicals or the right materials to create exactly the right colors that are needed. The brush, you know, taken from a, a good piece of wood and uh, having some you know, brush <laughs> artfully applied to it and it's able to, to do the job. And then the art happens. There's a lot of science that goes into it. But at the end of it, you have a painter and a painting. And that's what people see. But all that science behind it is, is just as important. And so that's what, that's what we're kind of looking at here is that interplay between knowing and doing, between knowledge and power. 
because knowledge is power, but we have to figure out how to convert it. You know, it's, it's not just right there ready. So this is, this is kind of what we're doing here. We're between knowing and doing, right? And it is difficult sometimes to separate the two entirely. Just like it's difficult to separate perception from judgment. Now, judgment is active. Judgment is saying, I am going to do this, or this is the way that I'm going to think about something. The perception is when it comes to us. Perception is passive. Judgment is active. And they feed one into the other. Our judgments can affect our perception, and our perception, obviously, can affect our judgments. And so understanding that there's a reciprocal here, it's important that we don't get caught in some sort of logic loop where we're expecting to see something, therefore we actually see something, therefore it makes us expect to see it some more. The worst military bumbles have occurred because generals are chasing their own tails. They can't separate these two. They can't, they can't figure out where the truth lies. And without being able to discern truth, without being able to use perception and judgment to our benefit, without being able to use science and art to our benefit, we're not, we're not in a very good position to, to do much of anything at all. So we're looking at this art and science dichotomy, how they feed into each other, how they're reciprocal, how they depend on one another. Uh, because even before, like the, the, the art, the art of doing something gives more knowledge. That knowledge is science and that science then influences the next art. Again, there's this interplay, this relationship between the two states. But war, Clausewitz says, war is neither an art nor a science, but a part of the politics of the human race. And it's too large, too complex to be called either one of those. It's, in his mind, akin to business competition or to state policy, because those are the things that outline the conduct of war. An army who does not abide by the customs of their own country um, does not see the field for long. You know, it, it was it was due to the commands and the the way that things were being run in the Vietnam War. The soldiers themselves were soldiers. The people making the decisions were making the decisions, and the soldiers took the blame for a lot of the people making decisions. And part of the reason we had to pull out of Vietnam was because of the public opinion turning against it. It did no longer serve our policy. It was no longer state policy. And therefore, it went away. There was no reason for it anymore. And so war, in his mind, is not so much an activity that one should actively pursue that is a true science or a true art, but rather a byproduct, a necessity. As he said in the beginning, war is politics taken to its extremes right? And so war itself, in his mind, doesn't exist as its own entity. It is not an art. It is not something that can be, can be done in that particular way, in his mind. There are people who might disagree, but it's, it's an interesting perspective. So finally, let's, let's uh, touch on these differences again, because some of these, these ideas are going to be important when we get into our next idea, which is the development of method. War, and this is, again, the difference between art, science, and war here. War is not an activity against the will of a passive object. 
So when we're talking about art, you know, the canvas is a passive object. The artist does not have to fight with their paints to get them to paint. They don't have to go and occupy the canvas forcefully. It is, a, it is an ideal art, as it were. Same thing with sculpting, or any of the other things we might call art. Mechanical arts, even. Working on a car, plumbing, electrical systems. All of these things are against a passive subject. They can be artistic. I've seen electricians who were artful. You would call them artful in the way they carried out their work. They were efficient, they were practiced, and it was gorgeous. They're obviously people who, who do anything, people who do sports, people who, who do their, any of their jobs. You can make anything into an art when it is something that is quote unquote passive. But war, war is the will, our own will against a living and reacting force, against an evolving force. Just because something works one time does not mean it will work the next time because our opponent learns, ideally. I mean, if they don't, then we win quite a bit. But our opponent, if they're any good, learns. And therefore, the art isn't necessarily all that possible because the science is not firm. Remember how science and art feed into one another. War is, again, a byproduct of those things. It's a byproduct of society. But laws... For, which are necessary for science. For science to work, we have to have observable laws, things that we know, the constants of nature. We know that force equals mass times acceleration because we have done umpteen thousand uh, experiments that prove that to be true. We know that gravity has objects accelerating toward the center of the planet at 9.8 meters per second. That is a constant. That's a constant acceleration that we are all always experiencing. So these laws, these solid laws are necessary for science and science is necessary for art and laws can't be developed from dead knowledge. And that's all we have when it comes to studying war, even here, even on this show, all we study is dead knowledge. I hope that you're not trying to conduct or, you know, put together laws based on what we're hearing. This is inspiration. We're looking for things that work out of what we're studying, but to try to imitate exactly what Clausewitz is saying or exactly what Machiavelli, oh, God forgive you if you do exactly what Machiavelli says, <laughs> but we're not looking to use dead knowledge because it no longer applies. We're going to have constant errors if we do. Those plans, those policies that worked at one time, they don't work anymore. The world has changed. And so because of this, war is not an art or a science because we don't have those laws. We don't have a firm foundation. We have guesses at best, probabilities that we run. But, and so in this way, I agree with him. I agree with him that, that war probably isn't an art or a science because of the way that he defines art and science here. Now, a little bit later during the um, interview section, I actually have a scientist, uh, a friend of mine who's a scientist who's going to be on. So uh, that'll be exciting. I hope you guys stick around because I definitely ask her what she thinks of his definition of science as opposed to how the actual process of science works. Um, but again, for our definitions, that's where we're at. So... Based on this, this is where we start to proceed from method. 
method cannot proceed from anything hard and fast because that does not exist. Method is not related to art or to science, but it's a combination of both at the same time. Man, I've been reading Clausewitz too long. I've taken on cryptic speaking as well. <laughs> um, but let's walk through it. Let's walk through it, kind of how he defines and, work, and, and kind of leads us through the definition and the development of method. The first thing we're going to define is law, right? And, and his definitions can get kind of shaky and they're kind of intermixed. So I tried my best to untangle what he was saying. And then I also threw in what we would use in like Miriam Webster as the definitions for some of these words. Because what we're going to be looking at is laws, principles, rules, methods, and regulations. Okay. So that's, those are the words we're kind of be, to be defining for law. He talks about how a law is typically a command or a prohibition. You know, it's either something will not happen, cannot happen, or something will happen. Um, nuclear fission, you know, it's a command, I guess <laughs> it's going to happen. Um, Webster defines it as a statement of fact deduced from observation of repeatable phenomena. So that right there is, is one of the reasons why we can't have laws in war, because none of these phenomena are repeatable. We are not going to find ourselves in the same tactical and technological situations as they did in World War II or in the French Revolutionary Wars or in the Punic Wars. We're just, we don't have that repeatable phenomena. Again, we have, you know, in, in tactics, we can. Overall strategy laws aren't possible. They're not possible for tactics either, but they can fit a little bit better. Any of these more specific things are definitely more useful when you're looking at them from a tactical point of view. So laws, the idea of laws, they're not useful in war because again, they're based on arts and science. And if war is not an art or a science, that means that it doesn't have these solid laws. So thinking of anything as a law is dangerous, is dangerous because there's always going to be exceptions. There's always going to be ways that that changes, our perception changes. So before we make our permanent judgments, let's make sure that we separate the two and that we're continuing to perceive the world as it is. So if we can't do laws, if laws are not the way that we can really define our, 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 our way forward, let's take a look at principles. And for him, the way he defines it is a guide for action when the diversity or unpredictability of the real world is not definite enough for laws, which is all the time. Merriam-Webster defines a principle as the fundamental truth of a given system or a general theory with a broad application. So a principle is something that is objective. It has equal value for anybody who reads it across all of time. It's not necessarily a law, but it's something that anybody can come to understand. A very simple principle, face your enemy. That's a good principle, useful for everybody. If you turn it like, regardless of whether or not you're using a firearm, a stick, a sword, your fists to turn one's back to one's enemy when one is in combat, I can't think of a good reason to do so. I'm sure there is. I'm sure there's some martial arts move that requires like faking somebody out in that way. I don't know of it. But that's a principle that goes across a lot of different subjects and, and can apply to a lot of different situations. 
A maxim is similar to a principle. Okay, so I guess there was a whole other definition to throw in there too. Um, a maxim is, is a kind of principle, but it is a short, pithy statement exposing some sort of general truth. So an army marches on its stomach, right? That's, that's something that Napoleon said. It's something that is short, pithy. It, it has the, the general truth, but it has nothing really sp specific about it. You know, an army marches on its stomach. Good. We can all kind of understand that, but the exact way that it plays out, that is subjective. That is something that really only Napoleon at the time would have been able to know what it, what it means. Now, you know, an army marches on its stomach would mean completely different things. I mean, it's the same idea, but the logistics of it are different. Whereas a principle, don't turn your back on your opponent or, or you know, face your opponent when you're fighting. That's not subjective. That's true. It doesn't change. So that's kind of the difference. If that makes sense. It took me, I, I was banging my head against this book for days trying to make sure that I got these definitions straight. So I think I did. And I hope it makes sense for you guys as well. So something, something that would be simple. Again, all these things apply to tactics far easier than they do applying to like a general strategy. And so a principle within uh, tactics, he, he says that like no cavalry versus an unbroken infantry. You know, we've, we've got our cav and primarily, as I think we've talked about before, cav weren't the charge in and, and do things the very first as they are often depicted in the movies as, you know, very dramatic cavalry charge, the knights, you know, charging in. That's not their typical use, at least within European history. With the horse lords of Central Asia, you have a little bit of different application. The rules are totally different, which is why we have no laws. Note. But the, the way that things were generally done in Europe was that you had your cav, but they were either engaging your opponent's cav or they were waiting. They were waiting for a line to break. They were waiting for an opening to the, uh, to the artillery, something along those lines to be able to capitalize on it. They were not necessarily an, an active force in going out and, and trying to provoke something, but they definitely followed up. You know, the infantry gave them an opening. They, they took it was kind of the idea. And so not using cav against unbroken infantry was just a, a general principle because it's just, it's not smart. The unbroken infantry can, can react and in, in numbers there is strength, even though I'm sure we've all seen Lord of the Rings, The Two Towers, and Return of the King. In both of these movies, there is an unrealistic charge. It's very dramatic. It's very awesome to watch. I love watching Theoden charge with the Rohirrim in, in, onto the plains outside of Minas Tirith. Just gorgeous. Gandalf, when he's charging down into Helm's Deep to liberate the defenders there. Just absolutely glorious. Does not work in real life. Both of those charges would have been doomed to failure. Like they had been cutting through the orc ranks. Again, I understand it was a, a symbol of, of triumph of good over evil. The fact that they were good and they were coming to the defense of their friends gave them a certain cosmic power that let them overcome the base evil of their opponents. You know, the orcs were sloppy, slovenly, whatever. But I also, oh, I need to, you know, draw it back that the Urukai were in there as well. Urukai, super orcs. Oy. So that doesn't work as a general, as a general uh, principle. Now, are there times where 
that might be a better idea to do? Yeah. Yeah, there might be. Uh, for instance, if you have a huge technological disparity, you know, if I've got tanks and you've got sticks, I'm pretty sure I'm safe to charge my cav at your unbroken infantry. I'm pretty sure. This principle does not apply there. So that's, again, that's why it's not a law. Or the use of a firearm at an, at only at an effective range. Good principle. If we've got a, a short-range weapon, like a shotgun, trying to snipe somebody with it, not an effective use of that weapon. Trying to use a sniper in close range, not an effective use of that weapon. So using firearms only at their effective ranges is important because without accuracy, what's the point? We're wasting ammunition, which was a huge deal back then too. And, and with the lower fire rate, it was even more imperative. You know, for us, it's a matter of material, but with the semi-automatic weapon, it really doesn't matter much. You know, we can pop, 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 pop. And again, we need to have the actual ammo to put in there. But if we miss with a, with a single shot, it's not nearly as devastating as a you know, a, a, a breech, not a breech loading, but like a muzzle loading musket. You know, it takes a minute to load. So firing that weapon, that needs to count because it's going to be a second before there's another follow-up shot. Does that make sense? So it's even more important here. Use firearms only at their effective ranges. And another good principle, the last one that he gave as an example that I really liked, spare our own forces as much as possible. Makes sense. Great principle. A lot of these principles are things that are like, well, yeah, of course. Well, that's why it's a principle. It's just, it's a fundamental truth. We all understand. Pre you know, spare our own forces as much as possible. Again, there's, there's times where this rule changes, where this principle is not followed. Uh, imagine the final months of the American campaign uh, in, in, in the war against Japan, World War II. As the Americans neared closer and closer and closer to Japan and, you know, eventually got Iwo Jima, which put them in spitting distance of Japan, the Japanese Navy was becoming more and more desperate. You know, they, they were running out of the ability to keep up. A lot of their Navy had been destroyed, had been either whittled away at or, you know, uh, absolutely decimated in some of the key battles that took place there in the Pacific. Um, and most of their skilled pilots were dead have been killed in this sortie or that sortie. It was, it just been a very bloody time. So the vast majority of the skilled pilots no longer were around. So they had a bunch of untrained pilots and an incoming enemy. And so what they ended up doing was, was doing the, the kamikazes, the, the suicide bombers, which was a, I mean, a psychologically absolutely devastating thing for the allied forces. It didn't stop um, the Americans from, from winning that particular part of the war, but it was incredibly demoralizing and an effective use, but, you know, eventually, uh, uh, virtually turning a plane and a man into a missile, which could be a very accurate missile. So this principle was broken. You know, we're not preserving sparing our own forces. They were using them as an actively as a weapon, as in like, you know, not just normally as a weapon, but like actually bludgeoning, blowing them up as a weapon. So that was where this principle was broken. So if those are principles, let's go on to rules now. Now, the way Merriam-Webster defines a rule is an explicit regulation or instruction of a principle or a behavior. 
explicit. But the way Clausewitz defines it is it's basically a law, but you've got more wiggle room. And I can kind of dig that. And these are the uh, these are ideas that are you know conclusions that are drawn from a vi- single visible circumstance. We're not dealing with overarching uh, issues when we're dealing with rules. We're dealing with something that we can observe, something that's immediate. And a lot of the times these rules will come in if-then statements or unless statements, right? And it's hard. Like I said, it's hard to really draw the, the definition between this and a principle. But the way I understand it is, again, it's, a, a, it's like a rule of thumb. You know, it's, it, for, it's, a, it's like I would think it's a, you know, if our opponent begins to fall back in bad order, then we pursue right? It's a, it's a conditional or it's the, the opposite of a conditional. So, um, you know, like we had said before, don't charge unbroken infantry unless there's a significant tactical advantage or something like that. So the, the rules are conditional. They're based on a single visible thing that we, that we can get at very, very subjective and very in the moment. The places where rules are kind of like this would be like games, or math, right? If we're dealing with a game, then, you know, we're sitting down with Monopoly. The best way to make a friendship or, or, or a relationship end. <laughs> and uh, let's, but let's say we're sitting down with Monopoly. And one or two of the rules seem clunky. So we change them. We agree to change them. And we have our, our new rules for the game. There were the rules, but then we bent them and we changed them. Math is a similar way. Euclidean geometry functions in a very logical method. You know, there's a lot of stuff that can be done with regular math. And then we break the rules. Then we get our square root of negative one going on and everything that follows forth from there. So again, rules are kind of like laws, but it's good not to think of them as laws because there are circumstances in which they should and can be broken. So we've got our principles. We've got our rules. And this is what we need. This is our, our, our key foundation. We know what we need. We know where, like, what to expect. So now let's start to develop our mode of action, our method. And this is going to be calculated on the most probable causes and the average of cases. It takes experience. We need to have time in the field. We need to be able to actually observe it, be playing games, fighting the fight, going to tournaments. That's the only way that we can find probable causes and get an average of the cases. And from this, we can then bring forth methods and, and regulations that are preparatory. It's, it's a more preparatory theory into the conduct of war. Again, it's not a positive theory going to win, but we've got, okay, this is what we're preparing to do. When we speak of regulations, we're talking about instructions for formation, uh, drill, field service. So regulation would be, I'm practicing this particular shot or this particular maneuver because it's something that I'm, I'm striving for. I want to be able to use it or it, I, I can see the benefit of it. So I want to, you know, practice it more so I can use it more. And that of course influences the method. Our method is a general way of executing our duties based on probability principles and rules. And there is a positive advantage, advantage to method and the regulations that kind of feed into it and come from it. And it's that the repetition of these formal exercises, they put it into our head. You know, there's, there's a readiness that comes with it, a, a precision, a firmness. You know, we're ready because we know what we're doing. It's precise because we've done it 10,000 times and we're firm in it because 
there's that, again, that confidence. We've got this. And this is necessary. I mean, especially if we were dealing with the war at the time that they are, think about it. They've got these, these large troop formations that are lumbering towards one another that have to switch from column to line and, you know, go from an oblique to a flank and all these things need to be executed perfectly with continuity. That needed to be practiced. That needed to be drilled. And so, but the way that that particular general or state wanted to fight, that's going to dictate how those drills are, what they focus on in those drills. You know, they recently changed, um, now by recently, I mean like 40 years ago now, but they changed the way that they were teaching combatives in the U.S. military away from strikes to more ground combat because... You know, they had found that the vast majority of combat, when it have like hand to hand combat, goes to the ground. And so it's better to instruct folks on how to fight on the ground so that they're prepared there rather than, you know, the strikes, which will have limited usefulness. So they changed the regulations because they wanted to change the methods. Now, the method has to change with the time and the situation. Just because a method worked does not mean that it will work. And we see this constantly, we see this mistake being made. One of the, this is the other part where he gets really saucy in this section is he was talking about some contemporaries of his and they uh, attempted to do Frederick's oblique. Yes. In 1806, they, they thought, you know what? We're going to go back to the glory days. We're going to pull out an oldie, but a goodie. And they pulled out the oblique and they were trounced. Clausewitz was sitting there just, just mad about it, saying, you know, that the, no army has ever been beaten as bad as they were beaten and just, just railing on it. And you may sit there and think, why? You know, the bleak was incredibly effective. Frederick used it to an incredible degree, but Frederick was several decades before this. People had a chance to study. They'd look back, maybe come up with some counter plans to it so that when these generals came forth and they were like, we're going to use this basically in the exact same way that it was used before. Yeah. People have a counter for it. People have a hard counter for it because just because it worked doesn't mean it will work. And that's, that's why we have to, you know, continually reevaluate our principles, our rules, and use those to influence how we practice and what we practice. A example from my own life, when it comes to fighting, I used to be able to do a move that I called the scorpion wrap. And instead of coming from the side and trying to go around the, the shield or up into the armpit, it was literally like it sounds, a wrap that went up and over the top and that I wanted to hit their back with a, with a straight shot kind of down from behind them. And it worked. Oh man, did it work. A couple of years I used that and just felt like a boss because people were having a hard time figuring it out. I had practiced that shot. I was good at throwing it and it was a really hard one to counter. So it was a, it was a bread and butter move for me for a while. And then somebody came to our realm. I can't remember who it was, but they brought the knowledge with them of how to defeat a scorpion wrap. And all it was, was just holding the shield a little bit closer to the shoulder <clears throat> and leaning back. With that little motion, that little lean back, it took away the power of the scorpion wrap and instead made it either uh, completely miss or hit the shield. It's just a small motion that wouldn't have normally been thought of. And that changed everything. I continued to try to use the scorpion wrap for a while. 
I was just frustrated, frustrated that my favorite move was no something, no longer something I could go to. But the field had changed and my methods had to change with it. So I, I liked this. I thought this was very useful, actually, this idea of not consigning ourselves to laws because the laws are based on uh, you know, a certainty that we just don't have. So we have our principles, the things that we are attempting to achieve, our fundamental truths. We have our rules, which are, you know, our regulations of our principles, but they're, they can be bent, you know, they can be flexible. And from these, this, this observation and this, these principles and these rules, we are then able to formulate our methods and regulations in order to reinforce those methods. To help me talk a little bit about art, science, and methodology, I uh, am looking forward to our next section where we speak to my friend, Roka. So here to help us untangle these concepts of principles, rules, uh, laws, and, and even science is a, a fantastic friend of mine who I've known for a long time and an excellent fighter. Here's Roka. Malark, thank you so much for having me. It's really fun to talk about these topics, especially given the distance we're all at right now. Um, yeah, I'm Roka. I am a Bellic Earth fighter from Oregon. I started fighting over 20 years ago, um, found my first foam sword out at Babylon. And uh, along with my twin sister, Acorn, we have been all over the U.S. fighting at various events. And I've probably met a lot of your listeners, which has been unique experience, I must say. All of us fight a little bit differently. So it's related to our topic we have today. It's really interesting to see how people in different regions fight or play our games. Well, absolutely. And it's one of the best flavors, too, of being able to travel and, and experience all that. But before we get into the, these, these lovely nuances that we're going to discuss, uh, one of the things that Klaus Witz said kind of stuck out to me. And he was saying that science is passive, right? That, that art is action and that science is passive. But as a scientist, do you share that view? Yeah, that's a really good question. So um, in my normal real world life, I am a marine ecologist, which means I study the interactions between species, between species and each other and between species and their ecosystems and habitats that they live in. And within that broad topic, my particular expertise is actually in classification. So I spend a lot of time thinking about how we understand data, how we measure data and how we understand categories such as science and art, which are two categories to think about uh, knowledge and doing, right? So I get what Klauswitz is saying because the normal kind of standard textbook definition of science is knowledge. Science, the core root of the word is knowledge, right? Right. And art, we've kind of stopped using it this way, but the root of the word art is, you know, it, many activities are arts, the art of war, right? It's the doing of war, the way that war is, is actually um, undertaken. That being said, as a scientist, a lot of science, the, the process of science, the process of gaining knowledge requires art. And I know Clausewitz responds to this a little bit and, and mentions it, but I do think that he undervalues the role of doing in knowledge. There's a certain experiential knowledge that you can't gain without doing. 
and therefore trying to actually separate them is a little bit artificial. And that happens in the broader scale outside of the context of our podcast, but in the broader scale of thinking about the way that science as a big S science knowledge operates, that is kind of unattainable, at least in my opinion, obtaining capital S science is not possible. Obtaining all knowledge and perfect knowledge is not possible. So instead, we do the process of science and science is an art in this way of thinking. Um, I get that the category is useful for him to differentiate between understanding something academically and actually understanding something as as an activity. Right. And, and obviously, like, there's been limitations. Like, I've picked a fight with Clausewitz over the subject of sanitation because mm -hmm. he said that sanitation isn't a part of, of what we should be considering with war, that it's it's kind of separate. And oh. Clausewitz died of cholera, so I did have to pick a bit of a bone with him on that one. <laughs> I mean, in his defense, he didn't know he was going to die of cholera when he said that, so, you know, perfect knowledge. A solid <laughs> point. Solid point. But, yeah, he wasn't a scientist. You know, he, he yeah. was an artilleryman uh, for a while and he taught at the war colleges, but he mm -hmm. wasn't a chemist or, or a marine right. biologist or anything mm -hmm. along those lines. Um, or, yeah, yeah. So obviously there were limits to what he would understand. But in this concept, like science is knowing and art is doing, it's kind of... I think that probably that comes from um, a really common way of differentiating between science and other things. And we actually do that in our society when we talk about science versus engineering. Right. So especially when we think of, um, you know, STEM fields, as they're called, when people talk about doing you know, education, everyone wants to have science, engineering, you know, technology, math. And in that framework, which is itself from the academy, <clears throat> you know, it's not it's not something from uh, anybody who should know any worse. It's people who should know better. But even in that scenario, uh, people differentiate science, meaning, oh, you're just looking for knowledge and people who engineer, right? People who do something. Right. Um, and so, although I dislike these categories, I do think that it, it, there is a, a fundamental difference between doing something to gain knowledge mm -hmm. and doing something to gain a solution. And so maybe right. that's where he's, he's working at that kind of um, juxtaposition. Right. Yeah. Right. Well, I'm, I'm, I wish he could sit down with you, but again, he uh, died in the, in the 1800s from cholera. So that's not going to be possible. Well, you know, um, we got to have someone working on that um, resurrection machine. <laughs> And, and as you were saying, uh, the, the laws that you're looking for with science are unattainable, that there's always mm -hmm. something uh, new, that there's always new information coming in. And that's actually something that Clausewitz would definitely agree with. Because when we're looking for solid laws concerning anything with war, it's hard to place things because things change. You know, uh, a musket becomes a rifle, a tank becomes a mm -hmm. Sherman, you know, mm -hmm. like um, there's there, like the laws are constantly changing. Um, but there's principles, there's rules that we can operate by. We like, for instance, we know that gravity is coming down at 9.8 meters per second squared. Um, but outside of that law, it doesn't really influence what we're doing. Um, so principles and rules, I guess, is where, where we're going. Knowing that we can't have perfect knowledge within wargaming and knowing that we can't have a perfect plan within mm -hmm. wargaming, how do you and, and kind of your crew operate? What are your principles and rules uh, when it comes to uh, being on the field? That's a really good question. So um, I'm going to translate your principles and rules a little bit just so I can put them in the context of my people or my group. So my group sure. is Catalyst. We're a small unit who 
for the most part, we almost are never all in an event together. We're very small and we're very spread out. Um, we live in Oregon and California and we have, one of us is out traveling the, the whole um, East Coast right now. Uh, and we, because we're not always at the same event, having a principle or a rule which we use as a collective doesn't necessarily work. The couple times we have fought together, or really when we went for the 10 man at Chaos Wars a number of years ago, um, we did have some practices where we intentionally made sure everybody was there. Um, Mm -hmm. and there we have one set of principles, but I would say that there are some uh, similarities between the two. So as a collective, as a really small unit who often ends up fighting at events where there are much larger units, we like to do, like one of our primary principles is like not to get pinched. And specifically, we do what we call gas. So like
and then three sword boards. Um, and we're standing, we never stand that close together, but we're standing in a, in a little clump. And if there's a big group crushing us from the left, but they're not running, because for the most part, let's be honest, we don't charge en masse. They're coming with purpose. And there's a group from the right coming with us, but they're slightly less fast. One approach is to split the gap. If you can see the opportunity fast enough, right? If you And can time see the it. opportunity fast enough, time it. And if you can use your body language, not to draw attention. If you start booking it through that gap, they will pinch you because both sides will see the opportunity. And so that's, an, I guess that's another thing that we do a lot in, in my um, unit. And also just the way that I fight. I like to use body language to communicate a lot to people in the field. And one thing you're communicating is I'm not a threat. Sure. Even though everyone knows you know what you're doing, you're, you know, you've been fighting for years, you communicate, I'm not coming after you. And if you communicate that effectively at the right time, that small group of five will make it through. If you miss that window, then your opportunities change. And that's when you use something like the, the, the gas thing I referenced earlier, where you scatter, right? So it's only if you're getting pinched, you actually do that. But you try to avoid that at all costs. Right. So that you're able to pick off little groups and, and have opportunities where there's 2v1 or 3v2. And that's uh, the, the idea of uh, local numeric superiority. Instead Right. of taking on this, this big unit, just making sure that you can Right. cluster in small areas. Yeah. Yeah, and actually going going back and counteracting myself earlier, that might be a law of my unit, is uh, we try at all times to have numeric superiority. We never have it, which makes it difficult, but that is what we go for at all times, is to try Yeah. and have a situation where that's, but you know, to be fair, that's really more of a principle of war, right? Especially World War Yeah. I, just keep adding more men, see what happens. <laughs> but no, that's, I mean, that's absolutely a principle of Fred Frederick's. Like when Frederick the Great was stomping all over Europe, he didn't have the largest army. But he knew how to use it. He'd get into an area where he had that 2v1, even though the army was technically bigger, that little battle or, or area of the battle, they were able to crush. And so it, it sounds like you're using a very similar tactic. think it's something you it's not that the tactics cool it is cool but you also have to use it when you are down in numbers which in in my unit's case it, that's always and for me personally as a fighter when i go to other events i tend to try to balance teams i think a lot of us uh older fighters do or more experienced fighters we try and balance the teams because it's no fun to have somebody get constantly crushed which means you're often uh, in a situation where you're at, at a disadvantage numerically um and so i think that A lot of fighters, regardless of their unit, use a similar strategy when the situation calls for it. I think that perhaps those of us from the Northwest, because of the scarcity of people, um, Sure. we all tend to use it more often, right? It's always interesting to see the mix when we have when we have uh, larger events where people come together and you have a lot Mm-hmm. of Westerners and like Northwesterners and such. And then we have a lot of Easterners who have a very different style of doing things. Uh, that synthesis can be really cool or it can just clash, like depending on the personalities and energy going on. Yeah. Well, I also think it depends on the size of the field. And I don't mean that as in the number of people. I mean the physical size of the field. Because if you have a small field and therefore the density of participants is high, even if the field is small, let's say you only have 20 people. But if it's only like a 10 by 10 meter area, or meters are probably too big, How about we say 30 feet by 30 feet, which I guess is close to 10 by 10 meters. Anyway, um, so if it's a small area and your density is high, you will be forced to use certain tactics because you Sure. can't flank, right? And so I always find interesting when we go out to other areas, partly there's some cultural differences, but partly there's a density thing where 
you know, a field, a practice field, a soccer field you might be on, or maybe you've got an indoor practice spot if you're somewhere out where it's cold. Those are only so large. And therefore, you train in certain tactics. Even if culturally you always wanted to be the person, you know, backstabbing or, you know, sneaking around on the side really fast and speedy, you might end up learning how to line fight and be standing on sure. the spot. Sure. Yeah. And, and, uh, I, I absolutely enjoyed going east, especially to Dur de Marion because the field was large enough. Uh, they just have this, this massive area in Elmington park, uh, that there was a large diversity. You know, mm -hmm. you've got, and, and you can see that in, like, I'm a Dark Angel and the various aspects of the triad. Right. you got the Brotherhood, which is more stationary line fighters. And then you've got a lot of the Dark Angels. And we're very similar to what you do, wolf pack hunters. Right. Um, very, very similar. Yeah. And you're small. I mean, Dark Angels, a giant Dark Angel unit, by definition, could not fight the same. I mean, no. even if you all wanted to be skirmishers, if 50 of you took the field, that's not happening. Like... I don't think there's even 50 of us. <laughs> Oh, God, no. I know there's not 50 of you. Not that I'm counting. I'm just saying. <laughs> uh, now, you were mentioning earlier this idea of no threat, of going through an area and trying to, like, shoot the gap or, or squeeze out the side by, by using your body language to convey low threat. And yeah. this has been a very common thing. Like, when Turkey Feathers was on and Thumbs was on and Toto was on and a lot of other fighters were on, they all described this, this ability to just yeah. sort of disappear. Yeah, so Acorn and I teach a class on um, uh, the principles of aggression. Mm -hmm. And in that class, one of the exercises we have the students do uh, is a body language exercise. And by students, I mean, you know, fighter participants. Um, we've kind of a few times, but essentially the exercise is uh, you try to act like a noob, stand in the body position of a noob. Stand in the body position of someone who's more intermediate. Stand in the body position of a vet. And then stand like a crusty old vet. <laughs> and the new position, we can see it in our mind's eye, right? We can see the tense body. The sh if, let's say it's a sword and mortar. Shield's up. Sword is probably slightly too high. Body is tense. Mm -hmm. Heels are probably up, right? They're on their toes. They're not really in a good position. So we define aggression as a readiness to attack and defend. And they're not really ready for that. They are on their toes. Somebody told them, keep your, you know, stay on your toes, but they're, they're tense. And then you can see someone who's a little bit more used to the fighting. They've relaxed a little, their, their body position has changed slightly. They've got their sword in a better position, but they're not ready to attack. They're very ready to defend normally. Mm -hmm. That's what most people tend to be good at. Then you get someone who's a vet, someone who knows what they're doing and they are a danger. You can see them on the field. That's the person I want to peg. That's the one the archer wants to shoot in the face. Lastly, you have the crusty old vet. And it's very interesting because although when we're normally teaching this class, we end up teaching newer and intermediate fighters, all of them recognize what that looks like. Now, some of them will lie on the ground because that's funny. Or some of them will, will become an archer because let's be honest, that's what happens to most of us. But the yeah. majority, uh, right, the majority of the participants will put their shield and sword down and stand relaxed because that's what someone who's been playing the game does when they're not attacking. Right. And that's what most of us do as the game starts. When they call lay on, the majority of us have been playing the game for a long time are watching and waiting. And we are not indicating with our body language that we're going to attack or defend. We're indicating we're watching. Everybody's seen that and everybody recognizes what it is. But what I think some people miss, and it sounds like your other guests have really understood, is that that body language 
is useful in other ways. And that's the same body language you use when you're trying to do something like split the gap. Because that body language implies I am giving you the ball. You are get to act first. It's actually not necessarily accurate, right? The, the vets who are really good can make themselves seem like they're not a threat and then you don't realize you're in their range, right? Bokhtar right. is really good at that because he's got such yep, long yep. monkey arms. Um, <laughs> right? But I think that that's what the body language is communicating. And I think mm -hmm. people underestimate how useful that body language is. So. Oh, sure. And, and like you said, there's a, there's a relaxed nature that kind of mm -hmm. comes to people who have done it for a while. And it's that, that conservation of energy. We're not using up all of our energy being tense. I mean, let's be honest, we don't have that much energy. We, we got to be efficient, right? right. We got Again, I mean, we're saying, I'm saying crust the old vet, but really, I mean, the high caliber fighters, regardless of experience, will end up adopting the similar posture. Because in order to be, it's not like you're not really ready, but in order to be explosive, you can't have your hands already there, especially if you're trying to juke your opponent out. If your hands are already before, you know, 10 feet before they get in range, if you're already telegraphing where you're going to aim, that's useless. Right. When they're in range, obviously your body changes, but you don't want to be telling everybody where you like to swing just because you're, you hold your sword high. I mean, everyone does a high cross, right? Sure. <laughs> yeah. I mean, and, and even as a lefty, I enjoy doing the high cross yeah. because it comes from an, an unpredictable angle. Like most people don't expect the left hand to high cross. Well, nobody expects the left hand high cross. You're like the or, Spanish or the Inquisition. Inquisition for, exactly, yeah, yeah. right? <laughs> you know. Like, oh, we're so good. We're so good. <laughs> oh. Yeah. So what you're kind of talking about there, though, <clears throat> is this principle. Right, mm -hmm. this this principle that um, trying to use this body language can influence what's happening on the field. Right, and that the passivity is itself important. Passivity right. is itself an action. Yeah. Now, if, if this is a principle because if somebody sees through it, <clears throat> like if I see you, for instance, mm -hmm. sneaking around the back line behind my unit, even if you're using that defensive body language, I know you're a threat. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. And I'm going to come after against most people. It would probably work as a principle, but right. there's going to be some situations. And like, I'm, I'm assuming if people saw me, they'd be like, wait a minute. Right. That guy. That's, well, and that's, I mean, let's be honest. That's what's uh, so fascinating about shy is that everybody knows that we still somehow lose track of him. Um, but the, <laughs> <laughs> I don't know how he does it. Um, but yeah, totally. I mean, the principle is that this is what doing this body language will provide certain opportunities. But in reality, in action, in art, that's not what happens, right? I mean, you, you can't guarantee that this is going to equal this outcome, um, which is what makes, you know, speaking of there's no laws going back to that in wargaming, you know, the law, if you drop a ball, it's going to fall with gravity, right? I mean, that's right. what's going, gravity is pulling it towards the center, which is the center of the earth, it goes down. Mm -hmm. And that is not the case. If you use this body language, you will not successfully split the gap you might you might mm -hmm. if you timed it right and the people don't recognize who you are and all these other things you might and it might but increase it, your chances yeah it increases the probability of right. being able to split that gap which is useful in and of itself and that's why it's your go-to move if you can um but you know if, if you miss the opportunity to do it but you might be able to make it still if you book it i still would not recommend booking it because you'll probably draw a lot of attention to yourself yeah. but <laughs> if you can if the gap really isn't that tight yet and for some reason you haven't moved already, then walking through it slowly is not going to help you. You're just going to be, you know, crushed. So there are, it's very context specific. Yeah. Which, you know, it's, it's, it's a rule too, in a lot of ways, because it's if, you know, especially in that mm -hmm. particular case, if the gap 
has this particular uh, setting, these these parameters, right. then right. this tactic will work. Right. Yeah. And so definitely like there's, if you're talking about it, separating it by principles and rules, the principle is that that passivity, this body language makes people think you're not a threat or, or can, right? This indicates you're not a threat. Whether or not they think mm -hmm. that, I don't know, but that's what you're, you're signaling. And then the rule is use that tactic in these cases, right? No, I like that. I like that a lot. Uh, and and before though, you were you were speaking a lot about uh, this class about teaching mm -hmm. an aggression class, yeah. and having the the regulation to be able to ch uh, change the methods, not just of the the fighters, but also for ourselves when we teach, we reinforce mm -hmm. those concepts. Mm -hmm. um, in what other ways do you use uh, regulation, which is to say like formations, drills, mm -hmm. that sort of thing, in order to increase your probabilities to to kind of reinforce what your strengths are? Yeah, that's a good question. So um, I think, you know, everyone, maybe not everyone, but I think it's difficult to assess your own strengths as a fighter. That being said, I think that it depends on my weapon set. Um, I, I'm a sword and border primarily, but I also arch. And so I, for example, I went to Battle for the Ring this year, and this year at Battle for the Ring, the way the field was set up when we did our 10-man tourney, I arched the whole time, which is the first tournament I've ever arched in. Um, normally I'm sword and board on the field. Maybe I arched him one years ago, but... Um, and so my role there and the the training that we do, the couple, like when Catalyst is on the field and we were in a 10-man scenario, not with all Catalyst, but with some of us. And uh, we practiced ahead of time, kind of gaming it through it kind of uh, verbally and also a little bit on the field. Uh, it was Aces Harbor, by the way, that was the team. Um, okay. Yeah, um, we uh, talked about the role for, for you know yourself as an archer and what you're doing in order to make those segments work is we actually talked a lot about where my positioning would be. And so we walked through it and physically walking in place. I mean, so training the little, I mean, we were doing a 10 man with kind of an ad hoc team, but we still took the time to train where the arch would be when it started versus where everybody else was. So we were on a pretty contained field. We looked at the 10 man um, field and it was pretty tight and they were starting both the teams in the diagonal corners. Okay. So since they were starting us in the corners, that changed where I was. And we also knew we didn't want to do line fighting. And therefore, unlike some of the other teams, we didn't start with the archer standing just behind everybody. So mm. actually, we started with two pods and I was in the center by myself, unprotected. But we walked through that. So I knew what my options were and they knew where I was before we started. So in that way, like that training leading, feeding into that weapon strength in that specific context we walked mm -hmm. through the scenario. Does that make sense? Does that answer your question? No, yeah, that, I mean, that's, yeah. you made a formation, right? right. You, you took a, a team that wasn't, the, you guys hadn't drilled together, mm -mm. right? I mean, it, it, like it was, it was still kind of desperate. And so what you did was you trained specifically for that situation by making yes. that formation and yep. then used that to influence what you did on the field. Right, and that we, so it worked, we, I think we had three rounds. Um, it worked pretty well in two of them. Uh, and then one of our rounds, okay. our opponents were uh, essentially, there were some tactical mistakes with who went where on our side, but they were also faster. So we played opponents who were just as fast as us, which means that that kind of skirmishy tactic and leaving the archer out in the open doesn't work as well because you have someone bombing after your archer, which means now you're down a man. Because let's be honest, I maybe shot one or two. I, I did shoot some people and kill them, but it's not the same as having someone take me out. I've survived each of the other battles. I didn't get touched which makes a huge difference, right? If your archer is not getting sure. touched, your the other team is dead. Um, right. Because I'll just, you know, and not just me personally, but any archer. If you don't kill the archer by the end, they will just shoot you full of holes. Uh, 
to yeah. me, the archer on our field, in terms of uh, like the the historic stuff that we study right now, the archer is the artillery, and oh, you know yeah. a uh, a uh, infantry unit will win a fight, tanks will win battles, but artillery artillery wins wars. Right, well, and, that, and that's the thing. If you can keep your archer, if you can keep your artillery up, and no one's touching them, they, I mean, I can just keep shooting you. Like, maybe I'll run out of arrows, but normally by that case, in our game, if that's the case, if you, for some reason, if you and I are the last people and I'm an archer and you're, you know, some sort of melee weapon, and you haven't run at me and killed me, you're probably legged. In which case, yeah. you're not very mobile. In which right. case, I can go get my arrows. So, um, yeah, and then it's a stalemate that lasts for everyone. Everyone gets tired and hot. Um, but, <laughs> yeah, uh, I mean, that's... So, as far as, like, the regulations we used, knowing the scenario of that battle, knowing it was really context-dependent, that would be the strength that I used as a fighter, was knowing my ability to arch, knowing I can read body language well enough to stay here unprotected, quote-unquote, avoid the other archers, if there are any, or kill mm -hmm. them, and read when I need to move <laughs> and, and get behind someone. So that... I think is, you know, that feeds into the, the tactics you use is knowing your strengths, right. like you were saying earlier. Yeah. Sure. Sure. And, and yeah, in that specific situation, like a lot of people use a formation, just kind of a loose formation, mm -hmm. but a specific one is cool too. Um, well, in terms of drills, like for me personally, I will do block strikes. Mm -hmm. I do a little bit of footwork drills. I do some uh, shadow boxing, some forms. Um, what sort of drills do you do to uh, intensify your strengths? Yeah. So um, then that goes back to my normal, like primary fighting, right? So I, I was describing the way I arched in, in Battle for the Rain, because that's a really good example of using kind of the formation and regulation component. But my primary weapon set is actually sword and board. Uh, and so I am a really big fan of Pell. I have not had a realm to fight with in 15 years. Oh. I move all over the country as a scientist. Uh, I did my master's in California, then my PhD in Washington, and now I'm back in California, then I'm moving back to Washington. Um, our jobs often have us moving a lot before we find a permanent position. Um, mm -hmm. And every town I've moved to has not had a Belgarth or an Ampgard group. Um, I have gone to some amp guard practices in towns that are neighboring. So they're about an hour away um, as of, you know, the last couple 10, 15 years. Um, and when I was in Washington, I actually joined an SCA uh, heavy group. And so I was fighting there. Mm. Um, so that was a, a different kind of approach. And that was really fun. So we can totally talk about that. But when I'm by myself, which is the majority of the time, I'm all about the Pell. And I also do, and this is not necessarily directly to the fighting component um as much but i also do a lot of like balance poses and i like to paddleboard and so i work a lot on balance which i think makes sure. a difference for you know i've had pretty good success going to an event and being decent uh even though i don't have a realm to fight with by pelling and and doing things like balance and i also pel with footwork i think a lot of people sure. pel um static and, and you know as you know you you have to do it you have to do it pretending your pell's an opponent or it doesn't really work. No. Yeah. No, yeah. yeah. If you're not, like, I like to be throwing shots hard enough to kind of get the, the bag mm -hmm. moving, the weight oh, bag. Yeah. Yep. Because then that changes the angles by which you have to throw your shots. Yeah. And that's, I not here in California because our yard's too small, um, but that's what I had for years was a, was a bag. Like, I had, I got an old Everlast bag off of Craigslist. Mm -hmm. And then occasionally I also, when I was working on my, um, 
I guess it'd be like my dark side low wrap, which I almost never throw, but occasionally I'll get it out. When I was working on that, I actually peddled on the corner of a door frame because it kept moving the bag and I needed to slow down and really practice it. And again, I almost never throw it because I'm, I'm out of practice and also it's not my best shot, but I used to throw it way worse than I do now. Um, and pelling just literally on a door frame in like half time was what let me figure out how to put the arm down, how to like when to do the turn. Um, cause that, I was right. My timing was off. So yeah, door frames are your best friend. Well, outstanding. But uh, Roka, I, I think we could probably talk for the next several hours. Uh, we, we've definitely oh, yeah. got the material for it, but <laughs> we have run out of time. Well, it's right. You can have me on another time, anytime. I, I would love to. Again, we, we've got more stuff to talk about here. So you will absolutely be invited back. Uh, it's been a delight having you on this time around. Yeah, thank you so much for inviting me. I, I love talking, Val. And as I said, I don't have a realm, so I normally don't get to. Well, we'll hopefully give you some more opportunities. Um, right. But as for the rest of us, we're going to move on to the pacification of the Vendée. promised, we are going to be taking a small aside to look into the pacification of the Vendee, uh, which took place in 1793. This isn't necessarily the most relevant to our, our study of overall war, but it was something that I had actually never really looked into and was eager to study and thought that you guys might want to learn a thing or two with me. Um, now, this, of course, was also a, a, a big... <laughs> Uh, test in remaining objective. A lot of times when we study this information, it is important for us to separate ourselves from the reality of it because otherwise our emotions would cloud us. And this is one of those situations where if you really, really started to think about it, it could get dark real fast. So remaining objective and just kind of, it's, it's, an, it's interesting to see the other side of things, what, what people say that they stand for and what they actually do. I find it just very interesting, but let's start March, 1793. What we're dealing with here is a counter revolution that is headed by this Catholic and Royal army. Now they are supported by the British. Now, if we hearken back to when we were studying Abu Bakr Naji, we know that for any revolution, for any sort of um, insurgency to exist and continue to exist, it requires external support because naturally you're dealing with asymmetric warfare. So there's got to be, there's got to be somebody helping and, and nobody was more eager to jump into that position than the British. Let's remember how the, the long and storied history of the British and the French not liking each other. They, they did not mess with each other, not at all. So... They were more than eager to, to see this disruption. Again, there was a, a there was the worry on the entirety of the continent. Everybody had definitely turned their attention to revolutionary France and everything that they were accomplishing on the battlefield, which was considerable. Um, and so this was a welcome way to dig a, a thorn deep into the side and have them be injured from within, have to dedicate troops and energy and, and resources to something that wasn't... Uh, you know, taking over the rest of the continent. So, it, I mean, it was 
tactically sound. It was a tactically sound idea, even though it led to some widespread chaos and just awfulness. Just awfulness. We talked a little bit in the last episode about why this counter-revolution took place. And among those reasons, you know, it was fueled kind of by the terror and everything that was happening around that. This just the madness that the cities were in. And when they, when they looked in, they were like, people are getting executed left and right. And you have to remember that in this area, the nobles were not as removed as they were in other places, like in, uh, in Paris. We had the nobles that were this extreme upper class who never had contact with their, with their subjects. Uh, in a lot of these areas, in, in like the coastal areas of Western France, there was smaller communities. The nobles were perhaps better to their people or not as ill-liked, whatever the case may be. So all of this seemed rather strange to them, if not outright offensive. Then the clergy had to swear that allegiance to the king, basically saying that they, you know, they, they were loyal to the king first and the Catholic church second, which was an anathema. I mean, again, people just, they were, they weren't able to go there. Most of the people who didn't though, most of the priests were like, no, we're not, we're not going to do that. And so, you know, they were suppressed. There was, of course, the deprivation that we had discussed, how, you know, there was these promises by the revolutionaries that when they came into power, they were going to fix all of these different issues. And one of them was to make sure that there was plenty of food, that France was well supplied with food and everybody had a meal. Uh, well, here we are in 1793, and that promise has not been fulfilled. In fact, you know, the situation is just as bad, if not worse. So, you know, that was definitely something that was weighing on the, it was like, okay, well, you guys came to power, you guys disrupted the country and for what you know what benefit are we seeing um and then of course you had the night of the 1793 levy which we'll we'll kind of talk about here in a second um but religion was being heavily suppressed in the in the region the french revolution was extremely secular like dedicatedly secular and beyond just abolishing the first uh the first estate they also uh barred the activity of religion in the area. I'm sure some of that was suspicion of the sentiments of the priests ferrying messages that, that was actually had been discovered that some of the priests had were ferrying messages between nobles or between counter revolutionaries in some way. So that they were definitely under the look for that. But the bigger reason was just these extreme secular ideas that bled past even abolishing the first estate. And we're talking heavy suppression, you know, jailing, of priests and, you know, associated folks, uh, deacons and whatnot, exile, which, you know, was, was sometimes kinder than other things that occurred. Beatings, you had public beatings, uh, just outright aggression towards men of the cloth. And the property was confiscated. A lot of times church property was confiscated as well. So you have all these religious icons that perhaps people you know, their, their grandfathers worshipped at that church and their fathers worshipped at that church and now they worship at that church and then here come these guys and they take all of the the iconography and they, you know, they, they strip it bare and they say you can't go there no more. You know, that's that's a huge hit to those who are, you know, these, these conservative religious folks. And the big one, this one struck me as, as massively, massively above... The, the, the like above and beyond was that they were not allowed to bury their dead with crosses. Something as simple as that, you know, they weren't allowed to put a cross at the burial site. So this is, I mean, yeah, their way of life is being up, uprooted con, like considerably, and nobody asked them. 
You know, it's not like they held an election out in the countryside and they were like, well, what do you guys think? Do you want to, do you want to join in with the same reforms that we're doing in the city? Or do you want to, you know, maybe have a conversation about this and see where there's a good middle ground? No, 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 no. They just inflicted their values on, on the uh, rural folk. And of course that, this is, and I don't mean to say that this is special. This is not special to France. This happens all the time. This is kind of the course of history. You have, you know, cities which are the vibrant hearts of any given nation. They're the place where all the ideas are circulating, where you have the various important people rubbing shoulders, things get done, things advance in the city. And there are conversations that are being had because of context, because of things that have occurred in there and, and the way that, you know, ideas or the, you know, the culture has accelerated. And then that provokes changes. And those changes might not be as well accepted to those who are not necessarily a part of that conversation because the folks in the rural area are not participating in the same conversation. They're, they're doing their own thing. They have their own lives. So to have this forced and then to say, oh, by the way, we're going to take a lot and, you know, some random of your unmarried men, what's left of them, are going to come and fight for these values that you don't believe in. So this mass conscription is, is, is the absolute last straw that happens, you know, in, in, in March 1793, we see the reprisal for this. Um, they form, there's, there's a, a number of local uprisings. This doesn't happen because like, you know, they, they planned it all together, but there's a number of local uprisings that come together and form what is commonly called the Catholic army and Royal was added on later. Uh, to kind of support that. But originally it was called the Catholic army and they did very well in the original, like as they, they came up in those original engagements, they took Cholette, uh, they took Mashe, Mashe, cool. I practiced all these beforehand, I swear. Um, in other smaller areas there in, in coastal Western France. And even though the Republic was quick to respond, they didn't take it seriously. And of course there were other things happening and this is 1793 and we're going to get into some of the, cause we haven't talked about 1793 all that much, the beginning of it for the, for the rest of France. This is a very eventful year. Um, and this is also happening at the same time. So they're, they're dealing with stuff. There's all sorts of things going on in France right now that need to be dealt with. So this seemingly small uprising that's taking place, it's not necessarily at the very front of their mind. So these first forays are kind of tentative and they show that they're not really taking the threat very seriously and they result in rout very quickly. The, the rebels, uh, the Vendeans, uh, you know, put them to their heel. They were not expecting this kind of resistance or organization. So we, we have this, uh, this little insurgency kick off in earnest and these battles that were taking place, especially in the early part, were extremely one-sided. You had one uh, group that was moving into an area that wasn't necessarily occupied by the other main army. They, they, you didn't have the big forces engaging each other, or if you did, they were just like minor little spats and then they, you know, withdrew. Um, but unfortunately, because this was, it was so one-sided, you had folks coming in and having almost complete control over an area. And this, typically led to massacres. Remember that we have folks that are rabidly opposed to one another. You have the Catholic army, which, which is 
massively in opposition to the secular state. You have the secular state, which not only considers, you know, religion an anathema to itself, but also considers uh, rising up against the will of the people to be outright treason. And this kind of treason is, is met with zeal, like religious zeal. And so you have these two sides that are absolutely sure of the purity of their cause, inflicting their beliefs upon the people that they happened upon. And a lot of this was also reprisal killings. You know, as the battles went on and one person or one side committed an atrocity, the next battle, if the other side won, they'd commit an atrocity. It's just kind of like, you know, we, we suffered this. And so we're going to take it out on you, the, you know, POWs or some of the civilians in the area. Like, yeah, this was a rough, rough engagement. For the first six months, we see primarily Catholic Roman army victories. It's their terrain. Uh, the Republic had not taken them seriously and, and really hadn't put their best people forward. And when they did, they were, you know, just getting run around because of, well, they had the luck with them in the beginning and they had, it was decent command, but there wasn't, there wasn't the dedication. They were good on their heels, but there wasn't the, the method. They didn't have a solid method to really rely upon. About in August, before we actually get into the battles I want to talk about, they were big enough to really, really matter. In August, the policy was passed down to start infernal columns, is what they were called. You take you know, a column of soldiers, you spread them out in a line, and then they, the idea was to go through and find brigands, was the way it was phrased that they were going to hunt brigands and bring them to justice and, and not to spare any quarter. But what the armies quickly took that to mean as anybody, anything. And so these infernal columns would move across the countryside, burning fields, houses, shooting people, committing unspeakable acts. You know, the, the, these were not pleasant. They're called infernal columns for a reason. They're not good. And this started in, in, in August as a, as a way to take away the base, you know, to try to intimidate folks into submission and to try to take away some of the resources that were available to the, you know, to the rebels. So let's look at the 7th of October in 1793. Uh, the Vendean army had just been beaten at the Battle of La Tremblaye. I swear to God I practiced these. And they had pulled back to Cholet, or Cholet, to resupply. They, they didn't have any artillery and they didn't have any bullets. So they needed to pull back. And the Republicans are kind of pressing in and uh, getting a good position around Cholet. And, and just to define real quick, especially for those of us in America, this term like Republicans, um, it can be confusing because in this context, it means exactly the opposite of what it means in America today. In America today, the Republican Party is the conservative party, uh, whereas in this particular sense, the Republicans were the way left party of France. So there was a difference. Just I'm, I'm trying to avoid the confusion that might pop up there. So the Vendeans had regrouped. And they started to, to push an offensive toward the north. And they were pushing back the lines. They had a, had a pretty good momentum going. And part of the reason that they were able to make such good progress was because they were burning the gorse in order to make smoke uh, as, as a cover for the artillery. And, and as we know, this time period, artillery really was important quite a bit. 
just as an aside real quick, my wife hates gorse. Oh my, she hates it. When she was working in New Zealand, uh, she was, you know, gorse was one of the things that they worked on uh, for her um, exchange program. And apparently it's just awful, just an awful, awful plant. I'm not sure if I've ever interacted with it to my knowledge, but uh, apparently it's quite, it has, it has a very thick smoke as well. So as they're pushing to, to the north, which is really, they're, they're doing a left flank from their perspective, the Republicans are flanking left from their perspective. So we're starting to get some toilet bowl action with this, this swirl happening, even though that, like one of the big reasons for the, Vende the Vendean push to the north was to get a breakout, was to make sure that they had room to maneuver and they weren't getting enveloped. And they advanced on the middle. They seemed to have really good position and, and really good timing. It looked as though an oblique perhaps might be able to be pulled off, but the Republicans had been hiding cannons in the center behind the infantry. So as the, the Vendean infantry is walking, marching toward the center with confidence at the, like the last second at the minimum range, the Republican infantry move aside and there's cannons right there. So that was devastating. It was an absolutely devastating counterattack that left the Vendeans reeling. And so they got out of there. Um, after the you know, massive damage, they flee. And this was the first major Catholic Royal Army loss. And the problem there is that the Republicans could just pull more people. I mean, they had the rest of France to pull from. Uh, whereas the, the rebels here, the insurgents, did not have that. They had their local region and the support from the British. That was it. And so a huge loss like they suffered here was not good for them. And we're starting to go into the bad times. You remember we're talking here about folks who don't necessarily have clear lines of logistics. They're relying a lot on uh, forage, a lot on local help. And so as we're moving into the winter months, that becomes less and less available. And as these infernal columns are moving across the countryside, it becomes even, even less and less available. And so not only are they suffering the normal uh, issues that come with the cold, they're also suffering from starvation. The lack of proper planning for any of this results in massively unsanitary conditions. And so you have uh, outbreaks of dysentery, typhus, and other sorts of fevers. Um, it's, just, it's just not good. It's not a good time. And yet they still try to fight on. At the Battle of Le Mans uh, that happened between the 12th and 13th of December, uh, they nearly got the Republicans in a trap. Like they had, they had um, baited one of the Republican commanders into a like cross a kill zone type situation. Uh, all hope looked lost. And then there were some Republican reinforcements that arrived and, and turned that. And then it, it went into the city of Le Mans and there was street to street fighting at that point. You know, we're, we're talking like hard to dig out small pockets of folks everywhere. And uh, eventually there's a retreat. Eventually the, the Vendians retreat and they're kind of using a bunch of different <laughs> routes to get the heck away from there and eventually move by boat to a town called Savonet. And this wasn't originally in their control, but there wasn't a large garrison there. So they quickly move in and, and take control. And they have a few days to prep before the Republicans arrive in earnest. And so they do, they're, you know, they're digging... Uh, fortifications and kind of reinforcing here and there and making sure that they they can do the best that they can. But they had to have known at this point. They had to have known that it was getting pretty desperate. And not just because of the actual military situation, but as we talked about, we had starvation going on, we had exposure. 
course, the disease that was happening, like this was, this campaign was quickly becoming a death march. And so the Republicans arrive and very quickly they encircle. It's smart. You don't want to just do a frontal assault on one side, squeezing your enemy is the best way to get that pressure on there. So the night before the action, there's a skirmish for the north, the woods to the northeast of the city, a vital location. And the Republicans win it. And at that point, uh, over the course of the night, the Vendeans do become completely surrounded. However, at sunrise, the Vendeans strike out a little sortie and retake those northeastern woods. It's a resounding success until Republican counterattack, which forces them straight back into the city. And at that point, we start seeing the pressure on all sides coming in. And they, they, the, with the numbers and the technological, like if you look at the, the differences between the amount of people that they were able to bring to the field and the materiel in like, you know, cavalry, artillery, just sheer supply. Yeah, the Republicans massively outmatched the, the insurgents. And then the, the Republican army was in the city fairly quickly. You know, this, this army began in the morning, you know, around eight o'clock, like a lot of them do. Um, and then it was over by two in the afternoon. Becomes that street to street fighting. The locals stand up. A lot of the locals stood up and started fighting as well. And part of this, like you saw this in a number of areas where the locals would kind of rise up and, and try to help out the army a little bit. And that shows, of course, their dedication to the cause, but it also made them a target in a, in a far realer sense because to the commanders for the Republican forces, anybody could be the enemy. You know, they, they weren't just the ones who were marching with the army. They, they could be anybody living in the houses. Anybody could be assisting them. And so this led to paranoia, which then led to atrocities. When you, when you combine that paranoia with zeal, with like absolute faith in some sort of violent conquest, it leads to atrocities. It leads to massacres. And during this particular campaign, these infernal columns and whatnot, women were specifically tar targeted and and. A lot of the abuse, a lot of the, the most horrific things were done to them. And it was done under the pretext that they were the ones who carried the babies that would, that were against the revolution. Like, it's strange. It's strange to look back sometimes at the propaganda and be like, that does not make sense now. But apparently it was very motivating at the time because it could get people to do such unspeakable things to one another. And so that was the Battle of Savonay. And it broke the Catholic Royal Army and, and the, the, the coherency of it completely um, disintegrated. The, the atrocities, by the way, that were committed were so bad that several generals resigned their posts out of disgust. Out of disgust is what was going on. Out of disgust of what their troops were doing. And so here we see the organized resistance end in the Vendée. Uh, there were still, there were of course guerrillas that continued to fight, and a lot of them were motivated by these infernal columns. Because, what? Uh, it's interesting. Of course, it's an interesting study in cause and effect. The infernal columns were effective at depriving the rebels of places to hide and supplies, and they were a, a hell of a, t a scare tactic. But in the same token, they made more rebels. I'm fairly certain, you know. If, you're sitting there and you're like, well, my auntie's field was killed the other night and they killed her and her entire family. That's going to motivate me 
to go join the CRA, that Catholic Royal Army, a little bit more than just sitting there being like, oh, there's some battles being fought in the distance. You know, so that's some motivating stuff right there. But it goes to show you that where you have absolute belief, absolute belief that is then mixed with paranoia and violence, we can see some of the most horrific things that are known to man. As has been said by wise people before myself, and as is fairly evident in what we covered today, war is hell. And it is good that it is as terrible as it is, lest we grow too fond of it. That's our show. Thank you so much for listening. If you haven't had enough of the art of wargaming in your life, you can find us on Facebook and Instagram, where I occasionally post funny and educational memes. If you want to get in touch with the show directly, you can email us at artofwargamingpodcast at gmail.com with any questions, comments, or concerns that you might have. Also be sure to check out all of our sister shows on the Earworm Network, including General Nerdery, Word Balloons, Fried Squirms, and more. We're working hard on having something for everyone. And again, you can find those at earworm.com. That's E-A-R-V-V-Y-R-M. You can also find that in the show notes. But for now, this has been Yaga Malark, signing off. Mm-hmm.